Well, I appreciate the opportunity to be here again. If you have your Bibles, we're going to open up to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. And I'm going to start reading in verse 35. It says, In the same day, when the evening was come, he said unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him, even as he was, in the ship. And there were also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship, so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him, and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose, and rebuked the wind, and said unto the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there arose a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly, and said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? I uh, realize that on Easter, a lot of times we think about a message on the resurrection. Obviously, i got to do a lot of twisting to get a resurrection out of Mark chapter 4, 35 to the end. So we won't be talking about that, not for any particular reason. I know sometimes people have an axe to grind and they intentionally avoid that. I tend to just continue to go on with whatever the next passage is that I'm, I'm studying. So it's not intentional, and I hope that we can focus in on, on the, uh, the message this morning and uh, be able to glean what God has for us here. Just to put this in context, it begins in verse 35 by saying, "...and the same day." And the same day that they're speaking of there begins back in Mark chapter 4, verse 1. And this is the chapter in Mark where Jesus gets the bulk of his teaching on parables. He'll he'll give a few more parables scattered out, but as far as just a concentrated area in the book of Mark where Jesus is doing extensive teaching, this is it. If you contrast that with the Gospel of Matthew, it seems like just a tiny bit. I mean, in Matthew, there are lots of heavy sections where Jesus is teaching. Whenever you get into Mark, you see a lot of what Jesus is doing. Uh, one word that occurs again and again and again and again is immediately straightway he, immediately straightway he, I think it occurs 80 times in the book of Mark. Out of the other Gospels, I think maybe combined it occurs two more times. So Mark is concerned about what Jesus is doing. Uh, but when he gets to Mark chapter 4, he slows down a little bit and he gives us, in the first part of Mark chapter 4, he gives us the parable of the sower. And then he gives us the interpretation of that. And then he gives us a couple of more kingdom parables after that. And then it says, uh, whenever we get to uh, verse 34, or I guess verse 33, it says, And with many such parables spake he the word unto them, as they were able to hear it. But without a parable spake he not unto them, and when they were alone, he expounded all these things to his disciples. So if you want to know what the day was made up of, it was Jesus teaching in parables. We get three or four of them here, but he continued to teach in parables. And then after that, he and his disciples went off, and he was able to explain to them what it was that he was actually talking about. He was able to expound to them what was going on. Well, after a long day of teaching, it says in verse 35, the same day... When the evening was come, so the day was gone, he saith unto them, Jesus says to his disciples, let us pass over to the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship. Now, the couple of different words that we have for ship and boat, and uh, at one point in Mark chapter 3, Jesus 
stands offshore in a boat to teach because they're afraid that the crowds are going to come in and, and, and crush them and squish them because they're all flocking after him to be healed. And that was just a little rowboat that he was kind of off in the, uh, right off the shore teaching. This ship is not what we would think of as a humongous ship, but it's probably a 15-passenger boat. You've got 12 disciples, you've got one Jesus, so you've got 13 folks in a 15-passenger ship uh, that they get into to go over to the other side, just kind of getting a little bit of context here. And then it says that there were also with him other ships. So it was not just Jesus and the 12 that were going. They were just them in that boat, but there were other little ships, other boats with them that were casting off to go to the other side with them. And in verse 37, it says that there arose a great storm. The word great there is the word that we get our English word mega from. It's a big, huge storm. It says in the waves and the winds beat into the boat, or I guess the storm of wind and the waves beat into the boat so that it was now full. And so really the description that we have here is a violent storm on this particular sea, the Sea of Galilee. Uh, this was not anything that was uncommon. It was pretty common for the sea there. The way it is uh, located geographically, the way the water is, is made up as far as the contents of the, the dense salt in that sea, it was not uncommon, still is not uncommon, for it to be calm for it to look about like it looks right now outside and then just all of a sudden a huge storm come down upon that really it's a lake they call it the sea of galilee but it's a lake winds have been measured up to 70 miles an hour on that and so really what we're thinking what we're looking at here in this uh storm is more of like a hurricane type storm that comes down upon these disciples and jesus as they're in this boat says the waves were beating into the ship so that it was now full the ship was filling up with water and in verse 38, it says that Jesus was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. Hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. One application we could get out of that, and, and you've probably heard it before, but we see a, a real picture here of the humanity of Jesus Christ. We find somebody that had spent all day long teaching and explaining and teaching and explaining. And so he gets into this boat that, again, it's a 15-passenger boat probably. There were 13 in there. So while there was a little bit of room, probably not you know, uh, a lot of stretch-out room for somebody to sit down and, and uh, get really comfortable. But you find Jesus in the middle of a hurricane-type storm where the waves are beating in on him, sleeping. So a man that was completely exhausted. I'll just stop there and say that if you've ever been tired, if you've ever been exhausted, if you've ever felt like you just were falling apart, this little picture that we get of Christ, of the humanity of Christ here, is uh, one that should really enhance what Hebrews says about someone who could be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, one who was tempted in all points as we are, uh, a man who was completely exhausted. I've been tired before. I don't know that I've ever been that tired. So he was asleep on a pillow, and they awake him. The disciples wake him up, and they say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Are you not concerned that we're getting ready to die? And it says he arose, and he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Peace, be still. The word peace there really just means hush, calm. The word be still is a word that's used to muzzle an ox. So literally, if we were to take the, 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 what Jesus said and, and kind of translate it over, or, or uh, get the trans, uh, uh, yeah, translate over the way we would say it, it, really he got up and he said hush, and he put a muzzle on the sea. The same way you'd put a muzzle on an ox, the same way you'd put a muzzle on a dog, he got up and just said hush, and it stopped. It was just like that. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Again, we have our word there for great. It's mega. The circumstances have gone from mega chaos to mega calm. 
And he said unto them, Why are you so fearful? Why are you so timid? Why are you so cowardly? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, What manner of man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? We find the disciples in the middle of a storm, and they it's a mega storm, and they are afraid. And then we find that they wake Jesus up, and as he calms the storm, and they are kind of out of the woods in the sense that they aren't going to die anymore, we find that they're more afraid after everything's calmed down than they were when everything was so chaotic. And the reason that they were so afraid, the word fear that we find uh, exceedingly feared, whenever you look at Mark, whenever you look at, I'm sorry, when you look at Matthew and Luke, they say two different things. Luke says that they were afraid and they wondered. They were in awe. They marveled. Matthew just says that they marveled. But Mark here, as he is no doubt getting his details from Peter, says that whenever this happened, they were exceedingly fearful. They were dreadfully fearful. The word for fear is the same word that we get our word phobia from. And that is that it's a fear in a sense that we don't really understand. And you get that from what manner of man is this? What manner of man, what category do we put this guy in? You know, the question here is what kind? What kind of man is this guy? What category does he fall in? How do we make sense out of what he just did? That the winds and the waves obeyed him whenever he got up and he said, hush, be muzzled. And it happened. We find that there's a fear here that goes along with or that is consistent with what happens when anyone, biblically or anyone anywhere else, uh, comes into contact with the holiness of God. But it's not just that. That is part of it, though. You, you have a high view of God here. A fear that, that this man, and, and while they don't make the confession here, they, they are, are obviously aware that, and as we'll get on to the message, we'll see, but they're obviously aware that the man in this boat is not just an ordinary man. No one talks to nature, and nature obeys except for God. And so the question that they have is, what kind of man is this? that even the elements, even the storms, obey his voice. So that's kind of the context of the passage. Those are the kind of what we get whenever we break it down and try to see the information that's there. What I'd like to do is kind of get into the passage or maybe step into the passage and see where it is and what it, what it has for us. One thing as I was studying this passage out that I really tried not to do is to uh, spiritualize this thing and to make it something that it's really not. And it's easy to do that with a passage like this. And perhaps I failed in my goal. We may get finished and you may say, Lewis, what are you talking about? You spiritualize the whole thing. But I've tried not to do that. One thing I did try to do was to look and see uh, how it is that the disciples are responding and how it is that the disciples are uh, uh, living through this and try to get some similarities on where we live and where we respond and where we react in the same thing. So I hope it will be an encouragement to you. This passage falls out, or at least the way I've divided it, it's divided into five different sections. And the first thing is this. And as we look at you know, the whole crossing of the Sea of Galilee and all the chaos that goes on there, uh, this is no spiritualization to say that we live this in everyday life. We live it in everyday life. There are chaotic events that happen on a daily basis. Now, you may not think you're going to die every day, but there are things that come up on a regular basis that catch you off guard, that catch you by surprise, that do not go as planned, that are different than the way you thought they were going to be. And so I think we can get some real comfort from these passages here, uh, from this story here for our everyday life. So the first thing that I'm going to, uh, first category I'm going to hit at the beginning is just the journey. They've been 
teaching all day, or Jesus had been teaching all day, and it says that whenever the evening came, the end of the day came, he said, let us go over to the other side. Let us go over to the other side. Now, we could put an emphasis on a lot of different parts of that sentence, let us go over to the other side. And perhaps you've heard the, the uh, comment as you get to the end of that, that, well, the disciples should have known that Jesus said, let us go over to the other side, let us pass over to the other side, that the destination was charted, and that's why they should not have been afraid whenever the storm came. Jesus already told them where they were going, already told them that they were going to make it. And while that is true, that's not where I want to emphasize, at least at first here, Whenever we look at the statement, let us go over to the other side, the part I want to emphasize is just the us. Let us. Let us. That's a direct application to you and me in our everyday life. The fact that God is with us and He will never leave us nor forsake us. The fact that whenever we find ourselves in troubled times, God is with us. Whenever we look at the, whenever we look at Jesus Christ and the incarnation, and we see God with us, the reality is that there's never a time in our life, if we're a Christian, where it is just me, singular, on my own, doing anything. Jesus says, "Let us, let us." In Isaiah 49:15 and 16, it says, "Can a woman forget her sucking child?" that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb. Yea, they may forget, yet will I not forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. Can a woman forget her sucking child? Most of us would say, you know, probably not likely. It does happen. We know that it happens with people. We know in a fallen world it happens, but we don't really see that on an everyday basis. You don't really see women that are forgetting their sucking child. Usually you see a mother who's overly attentive to her child. At least that's Uh, for the most part, the folks that we see. But it is possible that a mother would not have compassion on her child, but God says, not me, not me. I will not forget you. I have graven you up on the palms of my hands and your walls are continually before me. The picture is you're always right here. You're always right here. And then in Isaiah 43, Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1, this is another Familiar passage, Isaiah 43, 1, But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flames kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee. Really, verse 2 is what I want to get. And it's the one probably that you're most familiar with. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you go through the rivers, they shall not overflow. They're not going to overtake you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. And again, the emphasis here, in Isaiah, an emphasis that we're making here is that God says, let us, I'm with you. In every stage of life, I'm with you. Will a mother forget her child? Yeah, maybe. I'm not going to forget you. You're always right here in front of me. I'm with you. And then at this point, you say, okay, Brother Lewis, you've said that about a hundred times now. Make your, make your application. That's an old truth that we've known for a long time. So tell us uh, why you keep saying it. Well, the reason I keep saying it is because while we do know that, and that is a truth that you've known for probably a long time, that's probably anybody, if I were to ask for a show of hands on who just learned something new over the past several verses that we've looked at, it probably wouldn't be any hands in here. 
I mean, we know that. We know that God says that He's going to be with us even to the end of the age. We know that God says that He is going to be with us as we walk through the fires. We know what Emmanuel means, God with us. But I want to ask you on a day-to-day basis, do you live like it's an us? When I say us, I mean you and Jesus, you and God. Or do you live like the disciples are crossing the sea here? You know, whenever you look at, whenever you look and see what goes on in the details of this uh, passage, you do not see a lot of us. Jesus says, let us go to the other side. The next thing you read about Jesus is that he's curled up to take a nap. How is it that you take a nap on a boat? Well, it's when you're not needed. It's when you're not needed. Probably seven of those disciples were fishermen, familiar with the sea, familiar with storms, probably familiar with this sea, because this was a big fishing place right here. And so when Jesus says, let us go over to the other side, it says they took him as he was, they brought him into the ship. He went to sleep, and they were just doing their thing. I mean, we all have things that we're good at, right? We all have, and whenever we think about things that we're good at, most of those things fall within our daily routine. And so I will be first to say I thank God for habits and I thank God for routines. I mean, it makes life really efficient. I don't have to think about how to tie my shoe every time I go to tie it. Uh, I don't have to think about, uh, I don't have to process putting my foot on the brake or putting my foot on, I just do those things. We just build our habits to do those things. So in a, in a real sense, those are real blessings. But I want to say in another sense, uh, it can be a real hindrance as well because we just get caught up into doing what we always do. Need God for this? What are you talking about? I've been doing this for 30 years. I've been doing this for, I haven't been doing anything for 30 years besides living, but I've been doing this for 10 years. I can do this without thinking about it. It's not that big a deal. It's just everyday life. Well, you see, that's what's going on with these fishermen. I mean, they just got on the boat. They knew what to do. They knew how to get the sail. They knew how to get the oars. They knew how to get whatever. And they're just rowing and doing their thing. There was not a lot of us going on. And we can get, we can get in the same place just in everyday life to where it's not that we're unfamiliar with the idea that God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. It's not that we're unfamiliar with the idea that God says, I am with you. It's just that we don't really have the occasion to ask God for anything. I don't know about you, but there's been several times in my life, there are several times daily where I may as well be saying, God, go ahead and take a nap. I've got it from here. I mean, somebody comes in at work and they need something, and it's something I've done several times and I'm pretty comfortable with it. I do not stop and pray. I just do my thing. And I'm not saying that you have to stop and pray for everything. I am saying you ought to be dependent on God for everything that you do. But And, and so maybe I should say it this way. When somebody comes into work to ask me for something that I already know that I can do, I do not sense any kind of dependence upon God. I can do what I need to do. Now, I wouldn't say that in a moment, but that's just the way it is. You do the same thing. You do the same thing. And because it's just a habit, it's just a routine. Let us. Let us. second thing we have here is the circumstance. After they're on the boat, after the disciples are doing their thing, they're comfortable, they're moving over to the other side. Jesus is asleep. Verse 37 says that there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full So when the storm hits here, even in their area of expertise, the disciples' confidence turns into incompetence. They were in over their heads, and they knew they were in over their heads. And yet it was in an area that they thought they had it just nailed down. Never happened to you? Well, if not, then yeah, okay, at least one person. Yeah, it happens. It happens. We get comfortable in a situation. We think we know what's going to happen. And then all of a sudden, things take a turn. The truth is, in life, in your life, and in my life, we cannot control our circumstances. You can't control what's going to happen. And then when things do happen, you are not big enough to manage them. And that's what the disciples are learning right here. You can't control it. You can't control when a storm's going to hit. You can't control whenever everyday life is going to get so mundane and so bored that you're going to let your guard down. 
You can't control that sort of thing. Now, I'm not saying you can't control not letting your guard down, but I'm just saying you can't control how, how your outward circumstances are going to play out. And if we've already forgot about the whole us thing and we're not really focused on living with Jesus, you know, there is a difference in living for Jesus and living with Jesus. Sometimes we can get so busy defending something that we get just completely distracted and have no personal walk at all. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but it's happened to me. I'm so busy swinging my sword, I forget about the fact that I actually need Jesus too. I forget about the whole idea that Jesus would be transforming my heart, that Jesus would be transforming my life, that His mercy would become would be uh, more and more transparent and or more and more present in my life, that the love of Christ would be more and more present in my life, that I would become more patient, that I would become more long-suffering, that I would become more kind, more gentle, all those sorts of things. And instead, I, I can uh, kind of argue out of the Bible, you know, argue argue you out of something that you think you know. Well, listen, that's, there's a place for knowing what the Bible says. We ought to know that. There's a place for apologetics. And then there's a place for, for, for standing for sound doctrine. But I'm telling you, if there's no us, then there's not a place for any of that stuff. There's not a place for any of that stuff if there's no us. If there's nothing, if there's nothing in me that says, Lord, you know, I'm, 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 you've called me to walk with you. You've called me to learn from you. You've called me to mimic you, to be, to be conformed to your image. And when you look at the ministry of Jesus Christ, you don't see what a lot of time passes for somebody who is convinced that they're spending their life standing for truth. You don't see that a lot of times. And when I say that is, you don't see an argumentative Jesus running around. You don't see a distracted Jesus running around. You see somebody that says, it is my meat to do the will of the Father. You see someone who is doing. He's teaching, but he's doing. He's teaching and he's doing. Let us pass over. And then when the circumstance comes and we find out that, that, that our, our circumstances are too big that for us to control, too big for us to manage, then we've got a couple of different options. A couple of different options. The first option is to look to God for guidance. The first option is to look to God for direction. And when I say that, I want to be very clear about what I mean. Because there's a lot of different things that fly under the heading of look, for God, look to God for guidance, look to God for direction. Some people have the idea and uh, promote the idea that, you know, when you get into something like that, you just let go and let God. You've heard that before, I'm sure. That is not biblical. There's nothing biblical about that statement. Let go and let God. You will not find in the Bible where God has called you when you find yourself in a problem, when you find yourself in a circumstance where he says, just let go and let me. That's not what he says. There is always something for you to do. And when I say that, I mean, there is always something for you to be exercising. You're either exercising obedience and outwardly doing something. You're exercising faith. If you've got problems in relationships, there are plenty of things to be doing as far as uh, reconciliation, forgiveness, all those sorts of things goes. But then if you've just got uh, circumstantial problems and, and providentially you have no idea where you are, where you are in life, what's God doing? I can't figure out what it is I'm supposed to be doing. Well, God guides us and he guides us through his word. And while he doesn't lay out a detailed plan as far as this is what you ought to do at this time on this date, he does give us specific directions on what it means for us to press into God's kingdom. If God's kingdom is your highest priority, God promises all these other things are going to take care of themselves. Well, maybe we should say it this way. God promises I will take care of all of these other things. And so I want to encourage you, and you find yourself in a circumstance that's too big for you, and one that you know you've been brought to the place that you cannot manage, while God doesn't call us to self-sufficiency, and He doesn't call us to look to our own abilities, He does call us to look to Him for guidance. And that does not mean that He calls us to sit down and do nothing. It means He, has this, he, he calls us to look to His Word. He calls us to find His will. 
And then he calls us to follow him even when it hurts. He calls us to follow him even when it's scary, follow him even whenever it doesn't look like things are going to work out the way we hoped they were going to work out. But so many times we're like the disciples and we don't do that. So many times we get overwhelmed with what's there. And really that's the third point. We have uh, um, in verse 38, we have a couple of assumptions that come in. Verse 38, after the storm hit, Jesus was in the hinder part of the ship. He was asleep on a pillow, and they, the disciples, awake him, and they say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Now, surely you know, whenever those words rolled out of the disciples' lips, it did not sound like what it just sounded like coming out of mine. You know, kind of monotone, kind of not too excited. These guys thought they were dying. These guys thought that the ship was going down. They thought that they were getting ready to drown in a storm. And so they come to Jesus. They wake him up. This is after the waves had been beating in. This is after the ship was now full. They come to him, they wake him up, and they say, Master, do you not care that we're perishing? Now, a couple of things about this. The first one is, it's not really a question. It's more of an assumption. It's more of, a, of an accusation. Lord, we're in the middle of a storm here. We're in the middle of what we think is death, and all you can do is sleep. Where are you, God? If you read the Psalms, you'll find that there are several of those statements just worded in different ways. Where are you? If you don't come quickly, I'm going to die. And so, the first thing I just want to say is, is if we take a look at the timing of the disciples here, then verse 38 is no surprise. And then if we look at the timing of the disciples and then kind of look at our own lives and see how sometimes we time things out, we might see why we get as unraveled as we do. It appears here that the storm had already wreaked enough havoc on the ship that they thought, that they were dying. Well, the storm had to be going on for a little while for that to happen. I mean, waves don't just all of a sudden fill up a ship in two seconds. And so they are trying and trying and trying, and they found out that their abilities are not sufficient for what they need. And so they're trying and trying and continuing to try, and finally, when there's no other option, they go to Jesus and they wake him up, and they are really an element of anger here. Master, do you not care that we perish? Do you not care? How many folks in here would argue if I were to just make the statement that we have no abilities in ourselves, that we really are weak? Nobody would raise their hand and challenge me on that, I don't think. But how many of us test that theory when we get ourselves into the thick of life? We do that. I do that. Maybe it's just me. I mean, it makes a good sermon for me to stand up here and tell you how weak I am and how my abilities are just nothing and I'm just a little old worm and all this and that. But whenever life hits, for some reason my mind doesn't go there. And so I start trying to manage things on my own, and I manage, and I manage, and they don't work, and they don't work, and for whatever reason, I do not know why, that leads to frustration. You ever experience that? And that's really what happens whenever we look to what we already know is not sufficient. And then we become surprised whenever what happens is what we already knew was going to happen. Does that make sense? You know, we go trying to, uh, you know, it's like the, the... terrible that Jesus talks about a man building a house on the sand, a man building a house on the rock. Well, no one here would try to build your house on a footing of sand. If you did that and got aggravated whenever your house had some serious problems, we would have some serious questions about what was going on in your head, right? Everybody knows that. And so I just want to get the point here that whenever we try to live life without God, it always leads to the same place, and that is frustration, That is despair. And really, that is false assumptions about what's going on. 
Now, as they come to Jesus and they ask him, do you not care that we're perishing? Now, a lot of times we get to this point and somebody starts singing, yes, he cares. I know he cares. You know, the answer is yes, of course he cares. If Jesus were to get up and answer that question directly, like he so often does not do, he doesn't do it here. But they come up and they ask him, Lord, do you not care that we perish? If he were to get up and give a direct answer to that question, I don't think he would have said, yes, of course I care. I think the answer would have been, you guys have it all wrong. You're not perishing. You're not perishing. You just think you are. You're so consumed with your circumstances. You're so consumed with the storm that's around you. Your eyes are so fixated on all the scary, fearful uh, things that are around you that you've convinced yourself that you're getting ready to die, but you've got it all wrong. And so I want to tell you, we are not. Again, we've talked about sufficiency and insufficiency, but I also want to say we are not sufficient to interpret life on our own. You're not sufficient to interpret your life on your own. We have no idea what's going on in the big picture of things. If we believe that the Lord is our shepherd, if we believe that it's God that directs us, if we believe that we make our plans but God directs our steps, then we have to believe that outside of God, we are insufficient for making sense out of what's going on in our life on a big base, on a big level basis. You ever been anywhere where you thought you were, you know, well, we do that every day. Sometimes we think things are going to go great and then they go sour. Sometimes we think things are going sour and we're surprised by the good that comes out of them. We're just not sufficient for that. We can't look two steps ahead. I was talking to somebody a couple of weeks ago uh, who was in a real struggle. And their struggle was they didn't feel like they had emotionally developed as a child. So I asked them what they meant by that. And uh, so they said, well, you know, I'm just not able to tell uh, I'm not able to look at somebody and tell what they're going to do. So, so you're telling me you, you're, not, you're not able to look at somebody and, and judge based on their emotions what they're going to do next. He says, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I just lost that part, you know, growing up. That part didn't develop. I said, man, it sounds like you think you ought to be a psychic or something. Who could do that? Who could do that? I can't look at you. I mean, if I know you a lot of the times, I might be able to predict, you know, eight out of ten times, but... Who in the world could predict what somebody's going to do? We don't have the ability to look into the future to figure out what, who's going to do what. I can't hardly tell what I'm going to do whenever I get myself into a situation and I get emotional. I sure can't tell what John's going to do. Now, that may kind of sound like a silly thing, but it's just as silly for us to look at our circumstances and think, you know what, I must have really missed something growing up because I can't tell what God's going to do tomorrow or I can't tell what God's going to do two steps from here. Well, you know what? There's a reason why God calls certain things His secret will because it's a secret. You're not supposed to know. If he wanted you to know, he would have told you. And we drive ourselves absolutely nuts trying to figure it out. You know, there are things about me that, that, that are, are, I don't know how secretive I am. I don't really know what I would be trying to hide from you all, but I could. Things about me that you don't know that I wouldn't bring up. And if I can keep a secret from you all, surely the goodness God knows how to keep a secret from us. And we drive ourselves nuts trying to figure it out sometimes. Well, what's going to happen with this? What's going to happen with that? Well, what if this happens? What if that happens? Jesus gets up and says, you're not perishing. But then the second thing is, and I don't want to miss this, do you not care? Well, of course the answer is yes. Whenever we get to the end of Mark chapter 4, and if you haven't read it in a while, and you may not have, I would encourage you to go back and read the third chapter of Mark. And I just ask myself, how is it that the men who walked with Jesus through the third chapter of Mark, where these people were coming from all over to be healed, and Jesus was spending long days healing people that were coming to him, how is it that they could come to the conclusion, he does not care? 
And then I have to ask myself the same question. How is it that after I've walked with the Lord for however long, how is it when I've experienced God's mercies and I've seen God work in my life time and time and time again, how is it that I could come to the conclusion? I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that I think that, but how is it in my own private thoughts I could come to the conclusion God just doesn't care? God just doesn't care. There is an answer to that. It's not just a mystical happening that happens out of thin air. When we come to the conclusion that God doesn't care, something I like to call circumstantial amnesia, we get so focused on what's going on in the present that everything that God has ever done for us, it's not that we don't remember it as if it happened, but it bears absolutely no weight on what's going on. This thing is too big. The truths that we know about God sometimes get just swallowed up in our fear, swallowed up in our frustration, swallowed up in what we think was going to happen and didn't happen, and I guess I should say swallowed up in our own disappointment. Lord, do you not care? Lord, do you not care? And I just want to say that whenever we get here, it happens as we focus and focus and focus and focus on our circumstances to a greater degree than we focus on God and His promises. That might sound like an oversimplistic thing to you, but it's not. It's not. Isaiah 41, he says, Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon me. That will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon me. He says whenever your focus is on God, when your focus is on God's character, when your focus is on walking with the Lord, when your focus is on pushing in, pressing into the kingdom, God says, I will keep him in perfect peace. He says nothing about circumstances. He's talking about the man. I will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon me. So they come to him. They ask if he cares. They're frustrated. Verse 39, it says, He arose and he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? So here's Jesus' response. He wakes up. He hears what they have to say. And his response comes in, uh, there are two different things here. Number one, what he does. And then number two, what he says. He just gets up and effortlessly takes control of the situation. He gets up and says a word and everything's calm. Now, as we look at that, I want to get this point. While we see God's sovereignty over creation here, we see God's sovereignty in the man, in the person of Jesus Christ, over circumstances, over nature, I want you to know that if you think or in your mind, if you process God's sovereignty in a way that says, well, you know, I know that God can control my circumstances. I know that God can exercise sovereignty over my circumstances you have the wrong idea. That's a false statement. It's not that God can exercise sovereignty over your circumstances. It's that God is exercising sovereignty over your circumstances. You are not where you are today on accident. You didn't just happen to be here this morning. You don't just happen to be living in Gaston at this point in your life. You don't happen to be whatever age you are, doing whatever it is that you're doing in whatever place you are. God has placed you where you are. And He is sovereign over your circumstances. And that does not mean that we get to blame God for every stupid mistake that we've ever made. What it means is is that God overrules our stupidity and guides us and leads us ultimately to where He wants us to be, and that is conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That is to a place to where we are more and more and more and more dependent upon God. And so uh, I've got to make this clarification just to make it, because when these things hit the Internet and people start hearing about sovereignty of God, then they get sound clips. But I'm not saying that God is, is sovereignly uh, causing you to sin. You're responsible for that. I am saying God sovereignly overrides your sin. 
and ultimately brings us to a place to where we are being pressed in to the kingdom more and more and more and more. And so if you're frustrated this morning with where you are in life, if you're frustrated with what's going on in your circumstances, some of it may be foolishness on your part. But I want you to know that God has you where you are for a reason. Some of it is we need to learn wisdom. The other part is we need to trust that God knows what He's doing. That God's agenda and my agenda may not be the same thing. And God's agenda is going to win out every time. And then the other question is, or the other thing that He does as far as response in verse 40, He says, Why are you so fearful? And how is it that you have no faith? Two questions. Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Really what we have here is a uh, question followed by a question that answers the first question. Why were they so fearful? Because they didn't have any faith. Not at that point. So let's stop for a second and talk about what that means. Whenever Jesus asked, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? I don't think Jesus was saying, why are you so fearful? Because you have no ability to have faith. It wasn't that the disciples had, uh, uh, that had not been given the ability to exercise faith. It was just the fact that they were exercising faith in the wrong place. And again, we do that. Um, God gives us faith. He gives us the ability to believe. But I want to encourage you, and I guess I want to exhort you, that it is your responsibility to exercise that gift. He gives you the ability to believe. He does not believe for you. Does that make sense? When you get into a circumstance where things are not going the way you think they ought to be going, uh, is it a surprise to you that faith is not your natural response? If it, is a, if it is a surprise to you, then you may have a, a, a false idea about faith. I don't know about you, but whenever things aren't going the way I want them to go, I usually do not uh, begin to look and say, oh, well, you know what, I just know Romans 8.28 is going on right now. I just know that. I'm just looking for it and waiting for it to happen. That's usually not my first response. It wasn't that they didn't have faith. It was that their faith was not placed where it should have been placed. It was that they were not exercising faith in Christ. They were exercising faith in themselves. Sometimes we start thinking about faith, and, and when I preached this at home, there was a little bit of confusion about it because somebody would say, well, you know, whenever you exercise that faith, and you exercise that faith, and while faith is a um, supernatural thing that God gives us as far as us being able to place our faith in Him, really when we're talking about faith, we're talking about trust. We're talking about belief. So that it's not a supernatural thing really for us to trust on a human standpoint. I mean, if you think I'm a good guy, then you're going to trust what I say. Unless you've been burned so many times, you decided you're not going to trust anybody else for the rest of your life. It is a supernatural thing for us to trust someone that we've never seen. It is a supernatural thing for us to trust someone that we are naturally rebellious toward. It's a supernatural thing for a fallen creature to acknowledge that and to place themselves under the rule and reign of God. That's the supernatural part of it. But when we talk about faith, we're talking about trust. And a lot of times what happens is whenever we get ourselves here, our trust is in ourselves. So when Jesus says, how is it that you have no faith? He's not saying that there's, uh, faith is non-existent in the whole circumstance. He's saying, this is why you're so afraid, because your faith is not being placed in me. You're not exercising faith. You're not looking to me. And that's what happens with us so much of the time. That's what happens with us so much of the time. Again, that will keep him in perfect peace. His mind is stayed upon me. You know, Mark chapter 5, I mean, Mark chapter 4, the end of this uh, uh, chapter is not just a story that's plucked out of thin air. Mark would keep the same theme going through chapter 5 on into chapter 6. You'll find a struggle with fear and faith in every narrative that comes up for the next couple of chapters. 
They get over to the wild Gadarean. Jesus heals them. Long story short, the people come and they are afraid of what happened to that wild guy. He goes back to the other side. They come across Jairus. He comes and asks him to heal his daughter. Jesus' response is, do not be afraid, only believe, or work for faith. The woman with the issue of blood comes behind Jesus, touches his garment. He turns around, asks who touched him, finds him. She says, she is afraid. And he says, your faith has made you whole. Gets to find Jairus' daughter, heals her. There's a constant struggle, really, what we see, between fear and faith in the next chapter and a half, two chapters in this. And so I want to tell you that, that not only based on this, but based on what else we find, everything else that we find, faith is not something that happens on autopilot. You will never autopilot. You will never automatically just exercise faith. It's going to be something you have to struggle to do. It's going to be something we all have to struggle to do. You know, doesn't it seem like after Jesus goes through, a, or after the disciples go through a storm like this with Christ, and they get to this place and they, they see uh, in verse 41, they feared exceedingly in the, other, in the other gospels. They marveled. They were in awe at Jesus. They saw that he was not like any other man. They were coming face to face with the fact that he was God. Doesn't it seem like that they would, uh, that kind of event would just solidify that this is who this man is? I don't know about you, but I kind of think if I were on a cruise and there were a storm that were big enough to take the whole boat down and I thought I was going to die and a man stood up and, and, and spoke to the ocean and it obeyed what he said, I would think, well, you know, that kind of settles it for me. He's who he says he is. You know, Jesus is going to say again and again and again and again, oh, you have little faith. Where's your faith? Why are you so fearful? Where's your faith? Where's your faith? And as we look at that, that is really one of the most encouraging parts of this section. Jesus is patient with those who have weak faith. And while we, a lot of times we label folk, you know, heroes of the faith, and somebody has a strong faith, and this and this and this, the reality is we are weak. We are easily distracted. We are easily scared. We are easily uh, 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 thrown off of uh, our path. And so God comes again and again and again and again and says, where's your faith? Oh, you have little faith. Why are you so fearful? Why are you so fearful? He's like that gentle shepherd that turns the sheep back over and gets them back where he needs to go. He will not cast you off. He is determined that you will learn to live in dependence on him. And that means there's going to be some failures along the way. Does that mean we chalk those up and we celebrate them? No. Does that mean we're responsible for them? Yes. But you know what it also means? It means God and His goodness and His sovereignty overrides our mistakes to teach us what it is to live with Him. Listen, that's good news. That's good news. And then it says, They feared exceedingly, and they said to one another, What manner of man is this that even the winds and the waves or the winds and the sea obey Him? I want to go over to Psalm 107 to end out. Psalm 107. Wrong spot here. Give me a second. Psalm 107, verse 23. says, They that go down to the sea in ships, that do business in great waters, these see the works of the Lord and His wonders in the deep. For He commandeth and raiseth the stormy wind, which lifteth up the waves thereof. They mount up to the heaven and they go down again to the depths. Their soul is melted because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble. And he bringeth them out of their distress. He maketh the storm a calm so that the waves thereof are still. Then they are glad because they be quiet. So he bringeth them unto their desired haven. 
Oh, that men would praise the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men. And we could go on here. The theme of this psalm and what continues to be brought out of this psalm is that, oh, that men would praise the Lord. Oh, that men would praise the Lord. And then we get to this verse 23, and he begins to tell just a general uh, account. When you, when you lay Psalm 107, uh, 23 down to 31 on top of Mark chapter 4, 35 to the end of the chapter, you find in one sense that what happened whenever they decided to cross the Sea of Galilee was that Jesus had recruited these guys to really play out Psalm 107.23. They go out to the sea. The winds are coming down. They're trying and they're scrambling. They come to their wit's end. They reel to and fro. They stagger like a drunken man. And they cry out to the Lord in their trouble and He bringeth them out of their distress. He makes the storm to calm so that the waves thereof are still. You know these were Jewish guys that knew the Psalms, right? I wonder how many of them thought about this psalm. Probably not in the moment. They were probably scared. But afterwards, I wonder how many of them thought about this psalm. But then it says this, and this is what it was all leading toward. Then they are glad because they be quiet, so he bringeth them to their desired haven. Verse 31, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. This is God's end goal here. That's really what happens in Mark chapter 4 at the end. I mean, it says that they were exceedingly fearful uh, and, and, and that, that fear and, and, and that awe over the holiness. Whenever we tie in what the other guys said with they marveled, they wondered, they saw God for who He was. And really it led to praise. Now, we don't find them singing a song here, but in a real way they look and say, this man is not like us. There's no category to put this guy in. You know, it reminds you of what Isaiah said, or really what God said through Isaiah when he says, Whom will you liken me to? Well, nobody. There's no, what do you mean, what kind? There is no kind. There is no category to place me in here. Well, that's a form of praise. That's a form of worship. God, you are solitary where you are. And if you don't know this yet, you'll learn it. And you already, most of you probably already know this. There's nothing like a storm. There's nothing like a circumstance that throws you off of anywhere close to where you thought you were going to be. There's nothing like something to just drive you to your wit's end, to kind of take you and focus you in on your need for God and then to praise God for His deliverance. You ever experienced that? I know you have. You've been walking with the Lord. You've experienced that. It may not have been in a boat where you thought you were going to drown, but we've experienced that in everyday life where God brings us through storms. By the way, while he, while he brings us through those storms that He has brought upon us to lead us to the place, to the end goal, that we would praise God. Do you know you can't praise God in fear circumstances at the same time? You can't praise God and complain about your circumstances at the same time. You can't give thanks and be cynical at the same time. And so the end goal of all this is God is moving us, and, and obviously in a, in, a, in a bigger sense as we're thinking about eternal perspective, but while we're here as well, God is moving us to the point to where we are praising God. Our focus is upon God. Our mind is stayed upon God. And He keeps us in perfect peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that... Uh, well, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we thank You that You've told us uh, who You are and You've told us how You work uh, and You've spoken to us. Lord, I pray that You would uh, be with us and that You would uh, bless us as we live out just our everyday, uh, seemingly uh, mundane life, that we would look for You uh, in those uh, just daily routines, that we would not forget that You've called us to live every day with You. Uh, Lord, that we would not be overwhelmed with our circumstances, but whenever we are hit with them, that you would draw us closer to you, that you would draw our eyes and our focus toward you, uh, 
Uh, and then, Lord, would we be struck with uh, praise and gratitude that even when our weakness is exposed and we find ourselves in a place uh, that we cannot handle and yet we try to anyway, uh, that you show us and you bring us to a place to where we see uh, that you are bigger than we thought you were and we are smaller than we thought we were. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that you know how to teach us and we, you know how to bring us to a place of dependence on you. Uh, I pray that you would give us uh, hope and confidence in you and in your Son. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.